You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. My guest this week is Dennis Mortensen, CEO and founder of XAI. He's a data pioneer and serial entrepreneur who has successfully exited five companies, including Index Tools acquired by Yahoo. Dennis and I were both board directors of the Digital Analytics Association, and he was not only my inspiration to up my game and start entrepreneuring with ambition and at scale, He also gave me the very practical advice I needed to get started on that path. I'm pretty sure I would not be doing what I do and love without your guidance. So thank you and welcome, Dennis. Two questions this week, both from UK founders. The first asks, how can I inject a bit more urgency into my startup? It seems everybody's having a great time and loves working here, but I'm starting to resent the happy, relaxed vibe as it's costing us time and money. I don't think my board or angels understand how much the pace of things has changed and the risks we face by not going fast enough. Ooh, I can relate to that one. Um, The next question, my company is now seven years old and while we've built a solid enough little business and have a good niche reputation and product, we're not going to achieve the original scale I imagined if we carry on like this. I'm also a bit bored and deflated. My shareholders seem content enough and don't want to take the risk of really shaking this business up, but I suspect they'd be open to offers if I can find a buyer. How do I go about quietly seeking an exit? So two interesting questions there for you, Dennis. But before we jump in, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you've evolved over the years as a serial entrepreneur. Sure. I'll give you the short version. So I actually started out with the idea that I never wanted to be an entrepreneur because my dad and uncles and cousins and what have you were all running their own companies. And I've seen, at least at a very early age, a picture of what it takes. And it's not always pretty. And I thought, I'll just take my CS degree and go work for IBM. (laughs) Somehow, it didn't really work out like that. So I went straight from college into my first venture, which was a tech venture, and had perhaps a little bit of skill and a lot of luck and did an internet analytics consulting company back in the mid-90s and had a good exit in April of 2000. And if you could ever pick a date, you would pick April in 2000. And Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that was my first venture. And I learned a ton, as in you can go take your... 200k MBA up from Columbia, and you'll certainly pick up some decent processes, but actually doing it. That is probably the only MBA you need if you ever want to start a venture. And it's so unfair when you have to go do your first one, because there's no training really outside of just turning up Monday morning. So thereafter, I did another three ventures. And along the way, we had some decent exits, made a little bit of money and had a lot of fun. And I'm now at my fifth venture over 24 years. And we're about four years in on X.AI for where we're trying to make this intelligent agent that schedules meetings. So that's 
25 years of my life uh, just summed up in three minutes. It seems uh, long ago. <laughs> it's interesting when you talk about the first one being kind of a brutal uh, learning journey in lots of ways and th there being no kind of shortcut around it. And in a way, both these kind of questions about urgency and about exit, do you kind of feel like you almost have to get that first one out of the way and move on before you start to get really good? I... I'm almost sad when I meet up with people and they tell me a story about, I did a venture a few years back and it didn't work out. I learned a ton, but it is not for me. I'm back at uh, IBM and I'm getting paid every second Friday and it's all good. And I'm just seeing all this entrepreneurial waste for where, but you took your education as in, you are now ready to go out and do a real venture. And somehow I think people might have to, at least at some point, make a call on whether being an entrepreneur is a vacation of sorts for where I want to go there and see what it looks like and then I come back and I live my ordinary life or whether that is a lifelong career. And I actually do think it can be a lifelong career. And there's kind of different opinions on this for where some people suggest that you can only pursue a venture if somehow you've seen a pain that other people haven't seen yet. And in that lust comes some sort of output, which is this venture. I think it can be a career for where you can train for it and you can become better day by day, week by week, venture by venture. So I actually do think, coming back to your question, that most people might just have to accept that it needs to be a journey of multiple ventures for where do you know what? One, two, or three of them to begin with might not work out as you had hoped for. Why is it that you believe, say, a professional investor in a $150 million fund who will invest in, what, 20-some-odd companies, he expects no more than two or three to be super successful, two or three to kind of make it, and the rest just go belly up? Let's say that you are as good, no worse, no better than that pool which he selected, by the way, from Thousands a much larger pool. Exactly. Then you have to accept that you're going to lose some along the way, but if it's a lifelong career, you can probably do eight ventures in your life. Some of them will pan out and it'll all be good. So I actually do think you have to do that first one and just kind of give it all you have and come out on the other side and say, that was education I couldn't buy any other way. That's really interesting because I think the second question, I mean, seven years and it's not scaling, you know, I would have lost patience by then. I, mean, I, I lost I lost patience in, in the, the one that I was and I made some mistakes. I tried to scale it too quickly, which was a big mistake and then kind of rolled back. But for me, seven years would be too long. I just couldn't make that amount of commitment to something that wasn't going where I wanted to. I'd be impatient to be getting on with the next one. I mean, are there any of yours that you feel you perhaps should have exited sooner or, or let die sooner? Or has it worked out that you felt relatively in control of their life cycle? I would like to believe that I've been somewhat in control with the life cycle. But then again, I have at least an opinion that it's not about survival at all cost. That's certainly not my opinion. So there's this idea that I need to do everything I can to make sure that the venture survives at all costs. Even if we go sideways for three years straight and not really move upwards or downwards or anywhere really, I think it's 
okay to drive it into the wall. As in, I did all I could at full speed and it collapsed. <laughs> and that's a fine outcome. And that's why I certainly like this whole idea of looking at it like any game of sports for where we have a point system. You can pick whatever point system you want. Could be money, could be customers, could be anything. And it's okay to lose. It's not okay to play the game forever. That was not part of the rule set. It was you starting out on one Monday morning with some set of rules you put in place, and then you just run as fast as you can. And even the one that we lost, so we've had three exits, one that went belly up and now working on the fifth one. That we did for 19 months. I am sure if I had it in me, I could have prolonged that to not shorter two years, but shorter four years through all sorts of measures. I'm just, just not sure I see the, the point in that. The first question was about urgency. And I hear this a lot. Um, and it was a big frustration of mine. And I, and I don't know actually whether it's more of a European thing, because certainly the founders that I've seen that get most wound up about urgency in their business have generally been on a visit to the US or Israel and come back and gone, oh my God, we are not working at the same pace as everybody else. And it's a massive frustration. Is it possible, do you think, to inject urgency into an existing team? Or are you actually looking at your own processes and you're hiring and almost doing it afresh? I can certainly align to this feeling of not having applied enough urgency. And I certainly believe it's something all founders have, if not every day, then certainly once a week or once a month. I also believe, as you alluded to, that there's a different level of urgency in the US versus in Europe. I also agree with you that it's, certainly as you suggest, it's very hard to inject a newfound urgency midstream on a team that you already put in place. What I have found easier to do is to make sure that the day you get started, you get started with a level of urgency applied to all of the initial variables so that there's no surprise come seven months in or two years in that here's a new narrative that you didn't really feel last week, but now that I told you, I want you to kind of change pace. That seems, that seems difficult. So I've had all sorts of kind of processes that I've tried out over the years that both kind of suggest the level of urgency needed. And with that kind of uh, backdrop, you try to find the right people for where at least you are aligned on that urgency. And for those who think that is not really warranted for this type of venture or not the type of urgency I'm willing to apply or participate in at this moment in my life, and then they just don't come on and join at this moment in the journey. I don't think the level of urgency can be the same forever. I think it's more uh, four years in, you can't have the same level of urgency as in that just wouldn't work or there'll just be a whole pool of people which you can't hire at that moment in time. And you're just contracting that part of the funnel for where I could have picked up this good talent, but 
they're not willing to do six days a week mandatory. So at that initial kind of get going moment for where you're trying to assemble the team, I've certainly tried to, and it's not just for the hours. The hours sometimes are just really an indicator of whether you found the right people. So we've done in the last two ventures uh, in this particular form, this initial six days mandatory work week. And it's not that we want to work six days a week. I fucking hate it. As in, there's no fun working on Saturdays. But what we've done is that it's not the six days mandatory. It's that we need to hit a certain milestone because once we cross that milestone, there's some sort of inflection point for where we can apply some calm to some part of the equation. And then we try to hit it. And in our prior venture, it was a certain level of monthly recurring revenue because that would suggest that whatever kind of SaaS software we put in place, there's some demand for it in markets and this level of monthly recurring revenue would justify that. But we were running towards that, but it took us 18 months, not two months, like a year and a half of working six days a week. And we were ecstatic, not just to hit the MRR, but to delete that Saturday. And it was a kind of forever urgency to get to that because we wanted to see the company succeed, surely, but we really wanted to kill that Saturday. And, and what I like about it is that there'll be a ton of good people which you interview who on that moment in the interview for where you introduced the idea that we are running six days a week here and they would immediately just say, good idea. I'm not joining though because I'm not working every Saturday for the next seven months. And however much you love it, and I think at that moment you have to accept that right now we can't have two sets of people, the founders or that core group running at one pace and a set of kind of separate people running at a different pace, not at this moment in time. So I like it, you know, surely for the extra day, but it's more for the people which you end up not selecting because you end up with people who willingly say yes to a Saturday being willing to run at the same pace. So that's certainly uh, been one interesting kind of tactic to kind of apply here. I also like, and I'll pick something which is, uh, and this is very long-term, right? We did it for nine months at this venture. For us, it was a monthly meetings scheduled kind of milestone we wanted to hit because that showed that there was interest in market again. But it only, and I'm putting this in air quotes, only took us nine months. Um, I'll give you something on the other end of the spectrum, which is that I'm very fond of this idea of, at least in the initial period, running the company on one KPI. One KPI only, because as soon as you have multiple KPIs or quarterly goals that change or you adopt OKRs because the smart people over at Google kind of did it with some success and all sorts of things that you've read, that becomes not as easy to let on to. What I like, again, and people can call me simple or naive, is to buy a big-ass 60-inch plasma screen, put it in the middle of the office, pick font size 400. Don't write what the KPI is and have the number just stare at you day in and day out. For us, that number was 
meetings scheduled so far today. It starts at zero at midnight, and then we come in. It's 8.30 a.m. if you've got kids. It's 11 a.m. if you're an engineer and you don't have any kids. And you come into the office, and there's this number staring at you. And you get a relationship with that number. You have a relationship with everybody else at the office, but also with that number. You look at it, and it'll tell you something. Hmm, why are we a little bit short today? Or, damn it, we're really killing it today. That, I've seen at least, in that initial period, applies some kind of immediate urgency because you cannot not look at it. As in, you're kind of half sunburned just because the plasma is so huge that every day that is staring at you. At some point, you need to kind of have a more kind of sophisticated set of uh, KPIs as your backdrop to kind of run the company. But in that initial period, it's really just almost survival in trying to figure out, does this really work at all? And that has kind of worked, at least for me, on the other end of the spectrum. As in, how can we sit here and not be slightly stressed because that number was you know, twice the size just a week ago? Or how can we not kind of sit here and half celebrate because the number is now twice as big as it was last week? And that every day kind of gives room for discussion on that one particular KPI, if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely. It, it makes complete sense to me because it's, it's really difficult to keep everybody focused in running in the same direction. And, and I'm very good at the big vision. This is the mountain that we're going to run up. And it's always super, super clear in my head where we're going, but where I certainly struggled sometimes, particularly with teams who are working on component parts, is actually trying to join up you know, the day-to-day -day of what they're doing, why it matters, and really, frankly, why they need to do it faster, because otherwise we're all going to run out of money and die kind of thing if we don't do it quicker. Um, actually finding a way to to join my big picture to the little thing that they're doing or what they might imagine is little, which is actually completely fundamental to us getting where we're going. I, I know it's something I really struggled with with myself. I mean, I certainly made some mistakes at the first wave of hiring, although I managed to fix that, of people who liked the idea of being in a startup, but had actually got no idea what that meant in terms of commitment, in terms of the hours, in terms of how long they were going to work without really any reward for it. So I had trouble with that. But then really all through the sort of the four or five years of the last business, that tension between kind of this is a great place to work and attracting talent and getting stuff finished, I never really truly nailed. And it's the thing that I have to get right going into the next one is finish more stuff faster. The whole idea of not working at the whiteboard or having stuff in testing forever, but actually pushing things to production is not easy. As in, there's plenty of things, and you and I know this, that you and I could push to production this week. We could also push to production in six weeks because of all sorts of fair reasons. And there's certainly a challenge, as you suggest, and which I agree with, on kind of creating that culture for where we need to move forward. And I've certainly found 
Again, and you and me can share these uh, things all day long and we'll be on the seventh beer before we kind of get to <laughs> the end of anything here. But I certainly found um, two things to work here. One to kind of just speak to what you spoke about before, which is I found that really radical transparency helps in applying some urgencies, certainly when you're at a startup. So what I did to kind of... Uh, pick one of your points, the whole idea of running out of money is that I wouldn't do PowerPoints. I would log into Citibank. I didn't want, you know, some number and some PowerPoint for where you're kind of, uh, you know, three steps removed from it. No, I want us together in this mini all hands. Let's agree in the beginning, we just 11 guys and girls in a room. This is not uh, Microsoft. So I'll flip away. I would log in with user ID and password and everything on the big screen to Citibank, click into the checking account and show the number. I wanted them to see that number, have a relationship with it, because that rhymes with the last time they logged into Citibank and they looked at their own accounts and they had some relationship with, hey, I've got to pay rent in three weeks. And how does that kind of line up with what I have? And I wanted to kind of see if I could not recreate that kind of emotion not one for where, oh, we talk about strategy at work and I understand that we have a financial model put in place for the year 2018 and I can see how we might be slightly off. No, I want at least to see if I could not recreate some really deep emotion of, fuck, I might not make rent. If I can take from what you had four years ago right out of college and you had a moment for where you had an odd month, if I can pick up on that emotion and bring it back to here by logging into Citibank and that kind of level of radical transparency, I could certainly see work sometimes for some people as in there was just a real understanding of, okay, we got $10 in bank. We're going to be paying, you know, $3 this month. I can divide as in we probably need to ship shit because otherwise this uh, whole adventure is going to come to an end very quickly. It's, uh, it's difficult to manage, though, and you've probably seen this as well, for where some people don't live well under that stress that comes with this could come to an end very, very quickly. And you need to kind of figure out how to kind of balance that. So that's certainly uh, one thing which I've done. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I've, I've tried that myself, and actually I like that. And I think, again, probably in, in terms of the world I'm in, in, in Scotland and the U.K., that approach is very unusual. It's probably one I've nicked from you, I suspect. Um, that whole kind of sh share the fear, um, because I think it's really important. I think you, know, you can be casually sitting there going, yeah, well, you know, we can get somebody else in to help us and it'll cost us 50,000. You know, when you, if you get the bank balance up <laughs> and it's like 8,000, it's like, how how is this going to work? We're all intelligent people here, you know. You can do some your your data analysts, you, you know, your programmers. Like I think we can do the basic maths here, but there are a few people that are absolutely freaked out by that. They don't come to work for the fear of this could all end. But then perhaps they're not in the right place. Um, I shall discover that one in the next business. I think, and I think. That observation is true and honest and not even cruel. I think it's perhaps cruel to lure people into a startup for where they just don't function well under that stress, urgency, and fear that comes along with it. They 
like the idea of startups as described on TechCrunch, exits and holiday parties and this and that. And it's just none of that. And if anything, should you lose somebody early on because they can't cope with that, perhaps everybody is just slightly better off. But I also think that those who do get to the other side with you should be allowed to take real credit for the journey. I said, no, I was here when there was 8K in the bank. No, I was here when we were half off the goals that we set. No, I was here when you know two co- good people kind of left because they couldn't cope with it, but I did. So I certainly try to make sure that they understand that if you ever have any fantasy of doing your own thing, and most people actually do have some fantasy of at some point, I might actually just be you know a team member for the next kind of two ventures, but at some point, I actually have my own kind of uh, love story of going out and kind of uh, building my own startup. And I try to kind of tell them that, then this is your MBA. I said, you sitting through all these struggles, and even if we don't make it, that's probably going to be the best education because you'll have opinions about why we didn't make it. Now is the time to just kind of stick with it. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's fascinating because I, I came away from, you know, I personally left my last business, as, as you know. I was doing my exhaling in between crying uh, and exhaling some more, and I was like, this is all of this time, all of these years, and I've kind of walked away with nothing. And Stephen said, really, that's still cheaper than going to Harvard and doing an MBA. How much you've <laughs> yeah. learned by, uh, by doing it this way um, is, is, is a, very, uh, a very good point. And, you know, I, I definitely, I think one of the things that I've most learned from watching you across multiple businesses is, is a kind of like the speed, get on with it, it works or it doesn't, and you move on. But also kind of how you can almost refine a lot of that into a process for yourself as an entrepreneur. You can distill, especially when you do get your little bit of exhaling, whether that's kind of like you were at Yahoo, like I was uh, on gardening leave. (laughs) (laughs) That processing time is actually really interesting to spend just a little bit of time reflecting on how do I do this quicker, more accurately, more focused next time? You've talked about the single KPI. You've talked about the six-day week. Is there anything else, you know, as we wrap up that you probably think that you've come to define as your process of executing? What defines Dennis the entrepreneur on day one or pre-day one? Of the few talents I have, which might not be many, I certainly, again, like to believe that my ability to keep focus is one of those that have helped me along the years. And we all, if asked, would reply back if I walk down the street and say, are you focused on whatever particular thing you're working on? People immediately say, yes, I am. I'm not sure that is always true, though. But that is the one thing for where if I could give any advice to anybody, it would to be not just focused, but like hyper-focused. As in, what is it that you set out to do? And if I set out to schedule meetings, and people can really have a laugh now saying, Dennis, if that is your lot in life, you must live a boring life. (laughs) First of all, I fucking hate meetings to begin with, and you now spent four years trying to set up meetings. But if that is what you set out to do, you stick to it. 
as in you let nobody suggest anything, whether that be new team members, co-founders, investors, the world, the press, you stick to it. There's so much value in being hyper-focused. And I think there's just too many fears attached to this idea that I think I've cut this sliver a little bit too thin. My TAM is too tiny. I can't raise capital on it. My focus is too thin, so my customers are asking for too many other features above and beyond it, so I can't sell them. My focus is so narrow that when I hire people, they don't want to be married to the idea of just setting up meetings. But what I found is that the more you let onto it at all cost, the more respect you gain from all the constituencies, meaning that any investor will immediately test me. <laughs> or at least I look at it as a test. It might actually be an honest question, but I don't really care. I said, so Dennis, tell me what you're going to do when you grow up. I said, you can't schedule meetings forever. I said, what's the real story? I'm excited by this, but you know, tell me the grand vision. Now that is it. There is no slide two. Slide one, we schedule meetings. Slide two, the end. I said, that is it. We don't want to be half-assed at six things. We want to be world-class at one thing. As in, at least try to be world-class at one thing, as giving it our best. Should we be so lucky that we get to that point for where you look at us and say, they fucking nailed it. You know what? Then we can do whatever we want, but really let's on to that. And that I've certainly seen on the investor end. They might say, I'm not sure the TAM is, the total addressable market is big enough, but he's focused. I said, if anybody's going to solve this, it's going to be him and his team. I said, they're not going to stray away from this path. And I think the path is nice. And then on kind of hiring for good employees, they've been at plenty of other places, especially if they've been at Big Corp for where focus is just lost, right? You, you barely know where we're headed. I said, if I ask any employee at Facebook, which is a formidable company, what do you do? I said, they would actually have a hard time trying to explain to me what they do. We, um, we connect people in the world. Ah, that's too bland. Don't give me that shit. I said, you know, tell me what you do. And that is actually hard. But at least in a startup, yeah. you can find something so narrow that they can tell anybody in the subway, what do you do? Now, I schedule meetings. End of pitch. I said, it's not even an elevator pitch. This is from floor one to two. And then you can talk about, no, so how do you do it? Who are you going after? What technology did you apply to kind of solve it? So hyper-focus, that is it. And whenever you think you cut it too thin, cut it a little bit thinner. I said, you should cut it so thin that you are uncomfortable. Because I think once you reach that point, then you have something so precious that that is extremely defendable in pitching to VCs, hiring for good employees, learning on customers who will be willing to just see a little pain point disappear and have hope of perhaps you can remove another two pain points in the future, but at least you can do this one thing and you're good at it. Sorry, that turns you into a little mini rant here. On, uh... No, that was a wonderful rant, Dennis. Last time I started <laughs> my last business, you gave me six rules. 
I think it's very appropriate that this time as I go into the next one, you've basically given me one rule, which is focus, which is the one rule I really needed <laughs> to hear and have explained to me again. Because I think you always hear what you're ready to hear. And even when people give you a good advice, you don't always, it's not always the right time for you to understand it. And I think it's extraordinarily well-timed for me personally to take that advice on board. And I think that both of the questions that have come in on this episode also need to take that advice on board because it's at, it's at the heart of everything. Thank you as ever. I could keep talking to you all <laughs> afternoon, but you've got meetings to schedule. I realize that. Um, <laughs> so brilliant. Thank you for your time. You've been listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast with Vicky Brock and Dennis Mortensen. You can submit your question anytime at vickybrock.com slash podcast. And if you're not already using an AI personal assistant to schedule your meetings, make your life easier. Get to XAI for your free trial.